Hello, and welcome to this month's Addiction Audio. In this episode, I was lucky enough to have a conversation with musician and psychotherapist Adam Fajcek. Adam's a very successful musician, having played in the band Baby Shambles with Pete Doherty for many years. But he's also trained as a psychotherapist and works with musicians who've sought treatment for mental health and substance use problems. When we met, I asked him first about why he wanted to become a psychotherapist. So the first thing I could do is, can I just get you to introduce yourself? Yeah. Um, my name's Adam Fajcek. I am a professional musician, psychotherapist, and I like to think of myself as, a, as an informal music psychologist as well. Growing up in an environment which was uh, neglectful, impoverished, I grew up in quite... It was quite a fast lifestyle. There was there was some from looking back now with my new lens. I think there were some substance issues. So my background definitely projected me into a place of feeling quite wounded, not really knowing it because that was my framework. And then music for me was a huge outlet. It, it really soothed me. It gave me some kind of cultural identity. It gave me a way out because I'd left school at whatever, I don't know, 18. I'd left my highest grade was like a C in, in geography, everything else, failed everything else. So I was doing what was still a YTS back then. During that, I was involved with my criminal activity and I got pulled up on it. So my life started to spiral further and further down. And I was, you know, I was using substances just to self-regulate and self-soothe. And it was on a very, very fast, dark trajectory downwards. I was involved, I was taking probably the only area where I felt I had some control was, doing, was through substance using. Um, from that, I managed to find a springboard to go and do a BTEC in music at 19. So I was quite an, an old co- cohort, really. And I went to Essex and done a, a BTEC with mostly a lot younger than me. But I, for the first time, I felt that I could do something and achieve something. So I found music from, from that age. Because I knew no one there, generally in the college environment, people kind of come together from the local environment. And I think that I didn't know anyone. So I would just practice and practice and practice. Looking back, probably unhealthily, again, in, in an attempt to regulate myself. But workaholism has a, has a much more morally praised value in our society. So come out of that two years with a sense of worth, thinking, hold on, I can actually do something. Um, culturally, you know, that was a time of Britpop, so I was really, wow, this is something I'm really into. Um, and academically, thinking, hold on, if I do this, and I can go and do a degree. And in, and in my world, a degree was this holy grail. A degree? You know, no one in my family had done that. And none of my friends have done it. So it's the degree. Expecting to finish the BTEC, come home, and back to Milton Keynes I grew up in, take a few years out and polish whatever I was doing. But I managed to get onto a jazz degree, finish that, then got onto a PGCE to study secondary school music because I felt like I really want to be a musician, but I have to be practical here. I don't really have any other financial support, so I've got to support myself. So undertook the training, was a school teacher for a number of years, and kind of, I still felt wounded, but I felt okay enough. And then was in lots of different bands. Um, I started an MA in music education because thinking, okay, if I'm going to be a musician, I can I can keep building that, but also I want to build my academic infrastructure. And then during that, I was in one of my bands, and one of the bands took off, and that was that was Baby Shambles, and that went on for probably a good ten years, touring the world, you know, being shaken up all over the place, and then coming through the other side of that, really hitting the floor with a bit of a crash. Again, you know, my my life was like 100 miles an hour. I felt I was moving so fast. <laughs> and really struggling emotionally from that, working out who I was anymore, because I'd been on this journey, 
um, a lot of my old wounds kind of coming back up. Um, I think I was in the middle of a grief. My mother had died the same time I joined the band, so I'm holding two things. I'm holding this is innately sad. I can't even begin to describe this sense of loss. And I'm holding this amazing opportunity, life-changing opportunity, this anomaly. So I didn't really deal with the grief. So when I come through the other end of that, I really struggled, I think, trying to process all that happened from the trauma of being in the band and the excitement and probably some of the trauma from my previous life. These things tend to come up in those moments and connect all of those strands of fragmentation. So I was in quite a bad place. So I, I was seeking therapy myself. I struggled to find a therapist that really understood. I saw a few and they were in the arts and I'd sit in front of them and I felt they, they didn't really understand this perspective of being not just a musician, somebody that puts so much time and effort into their musicality, but then having that commoditized, so that then warps and tarnishes it slightly, and my background as well. So it was quite a, a unique experience. So I struggled to find a therapist that could understand those, those elements. So after about four years in therapy, I, I'd previously done a master's in music technology. So I wanted to more, rather than be on the road, I wanted to get more involved with recording. And towards the end of that, I was thinking about my next step and I was gonna do music therapy. And I realised that being a music therapist, as much as I would love to do it, and I still would, I thought career-wise it'd be quite difficult then to work in the field as anything other than a music therapist. And I was really interested in my own therapy and uh, lots of the reading I was doing. So then the master's kind of slightly shifted into my last thesis was about the emotional content of how music production can impact us and impact other people. So there's all that stuff going on. So that was leading me somewhere. And then started to explore through friends who are therapists and through my own therapist, my own therapy, and my own struggles, my own wounds, about training to be one. So that was my journey. That's how I got to that point, really. So from lived experience, from the value I got out of that in the therapy content, but also from being a professional musician. But not just being a professional musician, because I work with professional musicians. And I think there's one thing of... If you're a corporate musician, so you're out, you're working, I think that can be incredibly stressful. But then you superimpose that in the professional music industry where you're being commoditized. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. I think we all need that to get to make money from our art. And then if you add a third element, which is fame and more psychosocial aspects. You know, we were lucky, unlucky enough to be in the public eye when bands were, you know, the swing of the popular music pendulum was towards bands so we were kind of thrust upon that and all that that entails as well is incredibly validating for me somebody that struggled with a sense of worth to suddenly being some autograph and stuff like that it was really important for me and one of my big struggles is coming through that with the biggest loss initially for me was where am I going to get that validation from now because the wound that was already there had grown considerably so, you know, having to unpick all these things that I got out of the industry, all these losses that are no longer there, it was incredibly rewarding for me to reconstruct it and sit down and play a guitar and go, oh, God, I'm really moved by this. So, you know, pulling apart all those different aspects led me to train. And I always knew that at some point I wanted to put together all of my musical training and all of my psychotherapy training and psychology insight into a doctorate which would combine all of those things which I'm just about to embark on now. Um, so I feel like it's kind of a nice completion about to evolve. But still being a musician, still at heart I'm a musician. You know, I practice every day. I still want to release, I still get excited about touring, albeit on a smaller level. Um, still very passionate about it really. So that's how I ended up here.
What are your thoughts on the academic theories of addiction and do you think that they kind of match up well with people's lived experience of substance use problems mm. or addiction? Could they be extended in any places? Are there kind of holes or are there places where the theories just don't really hold up to what, what you see either in your own personal experience or in yeah. your practice? What are the academic theories? <laughs> well, I mean, there's a few different ones. There's an idea of a medical model of addiction or there's um, this kind of biopsychosocial model of addiction where you might have a genetic risk, your environment is going yeah, to play yeah, a factor yeah. and who you're with will play a factor I think it's well. a similar thing to mental health. I think we, we are born with a propensity and I think there's an inherent genetic part of it that we may be susceptible more than others to certain you know mental health conditions. So I do believe that. Um, I think it's a mixture of all. It's quite dangerous to say. Um, I think also the social aspect, I think cultural. I also think that my predominant, uh, the way I view addiction is that it's an affect regulation. I mean, reluctant to use the word disorder, but it's a struggle. You know, it's where people haven't had the caregiving or the caregiving's been there that they've not managed to engage with or internalise because not necessarily, it's not always the way that you did not experience this. It's maybe the, the fantasy of, of when you were growing up, whatever happened, whatever went wrong, you didn't get this. Um, and sometimes that's passed down through generations. You know, and if people are traumatised, then they're not going to be able to regulate themselves, thus they're not going to be able to regulate their infant and their child. I believe inherently, I work from the, uh, the basis that people that are using substance, and not only behaviours, you know, we've, we've got all sorts of things now, from exercise, which is deemed as, as the good, you know, the good addiction, EDs, eating disorders, drugs, behaviours, slash stuff, sex and love addiction, all of that. It comes from, I think, it's all, it's all a regulation. It's all, it's all a creative but slightly clumsy attempt to regulate ourselves. And I always say to people, you know, because there's always a lot of shame, I say, well, you know, this has actually been a resource for you. Who knows what would happen if you wouldn't have found exercise, you wouldn't have found relationships, you wouldn't have found smoking a bit of weed to get you through the day, through whatever you were going through intracyclically. And, and this, in a way, it's, a, it's been a bit of an asset, but now we have to update this operating system because it's not working for you now. So approaching it from that angle, rather than saying, you've got this bad quality, I think that's the first part I go to. And then from that, exploring what it is about them as people and their experience and how they've made their own meaning of the world. So I, I go for it from a, an affect dysregulation quality. Really. And then thinking about treatment and how we can improve or sort of better tailor support mm. to people. Are there any kind of ways in which people should evaluate their practice to help to sort of better improve the quality or personalization of care that's given to people? I think, again, it's a difficult one because it's like, I think, being a school teacher, I was very aware of, I'm there and I'm teaching a class of 30 kids, there's going to be people that aren't going to get it, so I get an hour. I think it's the same thing with, with addiction, especially in addiction processes where you're working with a group of people. Because it's all about the individual. I kind of, I do prefer working one-to-one. -one. I do group work as well. And some of the group work there is resourcing. It's, um, it's about here's a, here's, a, here's a structure, a scaffolding. If you do these things every day, it will more than likely keep you connected, keep you in your prefrontal cortex, enable you to really have the best chance of not succumbing to, to any triggers or, or urges to use, etc. But to try to facilitate that, I do still believe in one-to-one. -one. I do believe that the greatest asset is one-to-one -one and a mixture of also community, but in a more safe environment where people can be adhered to on their individual needs. 
So I, I think both. And am I right that you do you work mostly private, or do you do? No, I work in, in the centre as well. I, I've, I stopped in NHS last summer. Um, it's probably certainly going to be starting again very soon. But I, I was working as a psychotherapist. It wasn't in addictions. It was just with people that refer to primary care. And there we go. If you've enjoyed that chat, the rest of the interview is available on the Say Why to Drugs podcast. But until now, see you next time. Bye. Bye.